0: welcome everyone to another episode of where's this going before we get into it today i want to please remind you to subscribe to my youtube channel that you can find by searching my name felix levine on youtube as well as if you're listening right now please take a quick second to rate and review the show on apple's podcast app if you're a fan or a sponsor looking to get in touch with me please visit my website felix-levine.com where you can find all episodes in both video and audio formats as well as photos from every recording and all other information about myself and the show i also want to give a huge shout out to my sponsor us wellness meats all of us wellness meats beef lamb bison and dairy products are 100 grass fed and grass finished they also offer pasture-raised heritage pork free-range poultry and wild-caught seafood they specialize in a variety of special diets and have hundreds of paleo keto whole 30 sugar-free and aip Friendly options. U.S. Wellness Meats has over 400 all natural whole foods in their online store at uswellnessmeats.com. All their foods are raised on family farms dedicated to sustainable and ethical principles. They do not use any pesticides, herbicides, antibiotics, growth hormones, or GMOs. U.S. Wellness Meats ship anywhere in the country for only $9.50 for shipping and handling, and most orders are delivered within 24 to 48 hours of leaving their facilities. Use promo code PODCAST, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, for 15% off storewide savings at uswellnessmeats.com. And my next guest, I'm super excited to have him on the show today. Please welcome the borough president, of Brooklyn, Mr. Eric Adams. we're live i'm here with the borough president of brooklyn (laughs) mr eric adams thank you so much uh, for taking the time you are amply busy and uh, for you to take time out of your day really uh means the world to me so thank you
1: thank you thank you It's, it's good to be here and really podcasts have just started to change how we talk. uh, It allows you to go in depth and really learn people and not just through bites. So thank you for allowing me to be here.
0: And I think especially, you know, um, just to have the conversational feel, there's no agenda. Um, And I think, you know, especially in the political world, that's that's especially important. And also before I even get into it, uh, you know, for me personally, this is just a big moment because I was born and raised in Brooklyn, so to have you on uh, means a lot to me, so thank you for that. Thank you. Um, I told you a few seconds ago, the first thing that I like to do uh, with every guest is see if there's a little tidbit, a little story, a little fact. You know, you've done a bunch of interviews over your time. The Is there a little something that the world doesn't know about uh, the real president?
1: Well, I think that we all wear masks throughout the day, and from time to time, people can peek through them, and probably one of my significant moments, something that I always reflect on during my darkest days, is uh, it was important to me when my son was born that I was the first one to physically touch him outside of him being in his mother's womb. I remember uh, sitting inside the uh, delivery room, and the doctor had it all coordinated, And, you know, she says, you know, you can watch, but you can't intercede at all. And when I saw his head uh, was coming out of his mother's womb and the doctor reached for it, I grabbed her hand and I touched the tip of his head. I said, now you can finish the job.
0: Wow. And you've always remembered that?
1: My darkest days, when I'm going through a lot of despair... I'll just sit down and close my eyes and remember how it felt, feeling the top of his head and feeling that life coming through the universe. Even before he took his first breath, his dad touched him.
0: And we describe that that emotion that you felt from from that moment that you think about all the time.
1: All the time, uh, you know. And sometimes you're on this journey, and you could be beat down so much you wonder while you're here and while you're doing what you do. And when I go into a meditation, I meditate in the morning, I meditate, meditate in the evening. And that is part of the image that I think about and how powerful it is to watch life come into the universe. And I'm just in this constant state of giving life to something. And the most important life I gave was um, you know, that drop of sperm that I created a young man that is in his mid-twenties now, and it's just how we can continue to give birth to new ideas.
0: Mm, that's beautiful. And so, you know, talking about that meditation that you do, uh, I think you do every day?
1: Every right? day, twice a day, Monday in the morning when I wake up and once before I go to well, bed.
0: What does meditation look like for you?
1: Uh, it's, And that's a very good question because oftentimes people are caught up in this, ooh, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's not. It is about just allowing your brain to get out of the fright and flight stage that we are in all the time. We are hardwired uh, to run from lions, tigers, and bears. Uh, The lion, tigers, and bears of yesteryears are now the interaction with our spouses, the interaction with our boys, someone cutting us off on the road. Uh, Our body is not, meant and built to be revved up all the time. Mm. And so meditation to me is the opportunity to, when we're not revved up, when we're not running from the lion, tigers, and bears, we are in a healing place. Mm. And meditation is my healing moment. Just as uh, my physical body is healed, uh, I believe our spirit has an anatomy and that spiritual anatomy needs to be healed also. And so when i meditate i'm only i'm not only healing my body allowing the blood to flow right allowing for my vital organs to be healed but i'm also healing the anatomy of my spirit i'm, I'm bringing myself back to the oneness and the peacefulness my universal connection to the universe because we don't believe we're connected uh, there was an amazing amazing experiment done in Geneva uh, several years ago, sometimes in the 90s, where they took two pieces of matter and divided it into two and made it seven miles apart. They impacted one piece of matter and instantaneously the other piece was impacted also. Mm. So it doesn't matter if um, I came from my mother's womb and you came from your mother's womb. We are universally connected. There's Mm. nothing you can do to me that in some way is not going to impact you. You may not see it, But in this universal impact, we are all connected. We're connected to the plants, the animals, of the human experience. And so uh, meditation to me is to tap into that connection and become conscious of the universal connection.
0: And what do you physically do when you're meditating? What does that look like? Do you sit in a silent, in a dark room? I mean, I've had a lot of different guests that talk about a variety of different ways to meditate.
1: Because there is a variety of ways to go internally in oneness. I particularly uh, will sit down on a, on the floor, cross my legs, uh, You know, I like quiet. Sometimes I do it to music because I love uh, Middle Eastern music. Uh, I think in one of my lives I was Middle Eastern because it calls me. <laughs> uh, but I like to just quietly sit down. Sometimes I, I have a mantra, something I would say over and over again. Uh, and just allow myself just to focus on the presence. I would feel my body, I'll feel my hands, my feet. I'll feel my breathing. Breathe to become conscious of my breathing, and then I'll just fall into a state of just complete re- relaxation. And
0: does your meditation in the morning look different than your meditation at night? Or? No, same same, 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 same,
1: same thing. Same thing. Uh, same uh, method that I do, and it's just consistent. Doesn't matter if it's the morning or night. Sometimes I do it in the middle of the day. Okay. Sometimes I will go through a traumatic experience or feel something that's traumatic. And I would just take a moment, tell my staff, listen, I'm just going to uh, just sit down for a while and just go through some form of meditation during the day. Or sometimes I'm, I'm at the sink washing uh, dishes and I'm I allow myself to be conscious of the water, the soap, the moving the plate. It's just not having my mind all over the place, you know, uh, I can be walking somewhere in a park and I'm conscious of the walking. My feet, is they are touching the ground. And I think that's to me, the most significant part of the meditation is being present. We fear the future and we hate the past. We spend our lives divided in those two places. So you have to ask, when are we in the present? Mm. <laughs> you know, right. And so we need to take moment, be in the present. And, and that's asking me all the time. That you know, hey Eric, you know, what do you want to do later? You know, are you going to try to run for a city hall? You know, this is like a, an alchemist moment for me. I'm not. I don't focus on the destination. Mm. It's the journey. Mm. You know, we, you know, we sit so caught up on the destination. There was a prominent prominent Jewish leader in the city. He fought for a decade to get prom. Uh, he's part of one of the great members of his city communities. He had a piece of land that he was trying to uh, rezone uh, to be able to build housing on. And he fought for decades to get this done. He had so many battles and fights. And finally, he was able to get it done. And he had a, a, a great deal that was going to happen for hundreds of millions of dollars. He went to Florida to visit his family, celebrated, went into the, to the ocean to swim, got caught up in a riptide, and died. Mm. Imagine all those years that were wasted mm. We, you know, we spend all that time of just saying, yeah. if I get this promotion, if I get this job, if I, if I become this, if I become that. No, enjoy this moment.
0: Now, you, how do you as a leader, especially with everything going on and, you know, in the midst of a pandemic where, you know, you're the people of Brooklyn looked to, to people like you. Um, how do you stay present while also needing to help people in the future, really?
1: Uh, and that's a, that's a great question because you cannot imagine the how much we are inundated because people are in so much pain and they don't even realize they're in pain. Yeah. And they would stop me on the street. They would see me on the subway. They would see me riding my bike. They just, you know, I will sit down and talk because, you know, much of our communications is not is not verbal. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: And so someone can right. talk to you right. and say, "I'm all right," but if you know, if you really observe, you'll see that people are hurting. Yeah. You know, there used to be an old soulful ballad. If you take a close look at my face, you'll see my smile is out of place and the tracks of my tears. And what I must do is while I'm interacting with people with so much pain, housing, health. Um, children arrested, going through domestic violence, living in a homeless shelter, I must uh, become conscious of their moment, but at the same time, I'm not good to anyone if I'm not good to myself. Mm. And I always keep the focus on you must stay centered because my day disaligns my spirit. And just like a chiropractor will realign your back when you're disaligned Meditation helps me realign my spirit from all of the pain and abuse that is received during the day.
0: And have you been able to, you know, over the past really three months, have even a second to take in what's going on? I mean, this is some of the most chaotic times, really, in our lifetimes, really. And you know, in a position, especially you in a position of power, have you had just a second? I mean, and then you know, we have pandemic, and then all the you know race relations stuff going on. Have you had just a second to to take it all in, or?
1: More than a second, you know, more than a second. It has been very fast, uh, very uh, inundated uh, atmosphere. But uh, just as we would drink water because our body needs it, just as we would eat food because our body needs it, I meditate because my body needs it. It's not an option, (laughs) you
0: know, it's not an option. And uh, you said something really, really interesting in an interview. Well, first, the first interesting part of this is that you've been sleeping in your office for a while. Do you still do that?
1: Yes, still do yes. that. I would love to uh see a cycle out of this because man can't live on bread alone and uh I love some human interaction. <laughs> was and, that creative? Yeah. <laughs> that was beautiful.
0: <laughs> I mean the way you I, I think I think a lot of the way you say is very poetic. You a, But uh but you said something interesting in an interview as you said uh the president is Air Force One. I have uh I w I think uh I,
1: my I have Burrow Hall I have I have Burrow Hall, right. Hall or two oh nine uh yeah, yeah, whatever. 209, 209 exactly. <laughs> one. Uh. Um
0: but I think that's you know, first that's and that's something that for me like I just looking up to a leader and someone who represents where I live, that's so powerful for me. Um, especially in a time where a lot of us feel like the man in the in the White House is really not doing I mean, whatever. We're not going to even get into that right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's that's another not show, let's right? not. that we could do like six episodes on that. But, but you know what I mean? It's it's beautiful to see at least people on a, on a more local level really care. You know, and that I think was such a powerful um, you know decision for you to sleep in your office and show people. You know, we're in a crisis. I'm here with you guys. Mm-hmm. For you, what's that experience been like? Not just actually sleeping in the office but your interactions with people and, you know, has that in in a lot of ways grounded you more? Do you mm-hmm. feel like you've been able to do more of what you've wanted to do? I mean, kind of take me through this experience.
1: That's, that's, that, that is, you, you're dead on. And uh, the, I didn't know uh, that this was going to happen this way. This call has caught us all off guard. And I remembered when we cut the staff loose to have them uh, go home and do their job, uh, telecommute. I remember instantly came in my mind September 11th and how uh, when I slept in the precinct after doing 12 hour tours, it kept me in the right frame of mind because we we didn't know if terrorism was coming back. We were all afraid, Uh, we were all on high alert. And I saw that by sleeping in the precinct, I was able to just stay where I needed to be mentally, I wasn't bringing home trauma to my family. Mm-hmm. I was at the right frame of mind that, listen, we're in battle. Let's keep ourselves here. And that immediately came to mind when the we shut down the city. And we divided the city. And that's another conversation, how we divided the city. We basically said in the city of New York that some New Yorkers, uh, their lives are more important than others. And I said, how do I tell the train operator to go out and ride the trains? To Uber delivery person, the school safety agent, the 9-11 operator, the doctors and nurses, how do I tell them, you go out in harm's way, and remember, we didn't have PPEs for a lot back then, and you don't have food, you don't have child care. How do I tell you to do that, and then I go home? Yeah. That's just not—leaders, yeah. yeah. Leaders, generals lead their troops into battle. They don't send them in and say, how was the war? And so my presence as the ball president—you should have—it was un- unbelievable. The moments of sometimes I would go out to the schools and hand out masks to the school safety agents, and they say, "Is that the ball president?" <laughs> you know. Yeah. And or I would go to NYCHA and knock on doors and hand them masks and give them tips on how to survive coronavirus, or deliver food to hospitals, or be at some of the senior uh, locations, give food. It was substantive because I was I was given supplies to the front line, mm-hmm. but it was also symbolic. Right. You yep. know, here your here your general is is with you in this battle. And that was important. So I said instead of going home, coming back, going home, coming back, let me just get a couple of shorts. Some underwears, some toothpaste, <laughs> get a little mattress and just get my little teddy bear and my little stuffed dragon and my, <laughs> and my Jets football. And let me just, you know, do it here at Borough Hall, man. I had my gym, had my, my neutral bullet, my ninja, you know, all <laughs> of my food. And I just said, you know what, we're gonna do it here, man. So it's been what? And the, the real vision is that we cycled to another place in coronavirus. And then we hit this another place with the marches. Right. And a lot of people don't remember those first few days, that Friday, that Saturday, there was some real stuff going on. Yeah. When I was down yeah. at the Barclays yeah. Center, yeah. when right, I was right driving, here. oh, when I went to Lafayette and I saw I a, a car burning, and then I get a call from the police department, the, the counterterrorism to tell me about an element that was trying to burn down the city. So I had to be on the ground in a real way. What's, what's going on in your head when you
0: especially let's talk about those first couple days of those protests that then went south uh you know especially right over here at Barclays what's going on in your head when you hear counterterrorism NYPD calls you this is happening you see you see the videos i mean how do you stay calm and you know make because the reality is people like you especially they, they make calm calculated decisions right but in chaotic times how do you gauge that what's and what's going on through your head
1: friday and Saturday was an OS moment for me. I was like, "We, you know, uh, NASA, we got a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Friday and Saturday, because there was an energy, a righteous energy of young people saying, we want change in policing. But there was an element that was attempting to hijack that. And they were bad people. (laughs) They were anarchists. Uh, they were they knew how to make Molotov cocktails. They were strategic in having uh, rocks in their backpacks. They were deployed to really create madness. Now, imagine one of them having a gun and shoot at the police from the crowd. Now yeah. we have all these innocent people. Yeah. So we were it was a time bomb. And so we were successful in getting to people like Anthony Beckford, the head of Black Lives Matter, uh Brooklyn. I called some of my 100 Blacks and Law Enforcement guys that were with me, I, I told them what was going on, they started going to the rallies, we started instructing some of the organizers on what to look for, on how to police themselves, to get these people out, and so there was a well behind the scene, a well organized campaign to say we gotta keep this peaceful.
0: Now, uh, a couple weeks ago I had, I don't know if you're familiar with her, Shavana Newsom. Yes, um, yes. For people that don't know, co-founder of uh, Black Lives Matter greater in New York City, and um, you know she was talking about this organization, and you know it's it's really I mean it's super interesting when you get down in the weeds of it. But how much uh, you know communication is there between your office and your staff, and kind of like the local government, and you know the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement, and when you guys are organizing the protests?
1: Very, and that's that's extremely important. Uh, I have been relegated. Uh, you know, like any great athlete, they know when to get out of the ring and allow the next athlete, ap- athlete to take their place. I'm the coach now, you know, I'm, I don't have the legs anymore, yeah. <laughs> you, know that, you know, and so. Uh, the, the most important relationship I can do right now is to go to the Anthony Beckford the Hawk Newsons, and others and say, here's the experience I have for over 20 plus years in policing, where the chokeholes of reform is located. But this is your movement. Mm-hmm. This is your movement. This is a young this is a young people movement. They need to not disengage the relationship with their coach. The coach may be a mentor, maybe their elders, maybe a family member, it may be Dr. King's children. You know, they should be still be the advisors. And so all I do with the organizers of this, when they need me, they will call and say, can you give me some input on this? The police department say they're going to do this. Does this make sense? Other than that, I, my ass is out of the way.
0: We're going to take a, just a really quick break because I want to talk about my sponsor, Nanocraft CBD. Uh, I'm very excited to announce my partnership with them to all my listeners. And you've probably heard of all the benefits of CBD. Millions of people are using it to manage their anxiety, recover faster, improve their mental focus, and even get deeper sleep. It's pretty remarkable how diverse the benefits can be for some folks. My partners at NanoCraft CBD are one of the top brands in the industry, and they are actually the number one CBD for athletes. They focus on making unique hemp-based formulas that combine CBD with other nutrients and superfoods like B12, ashwagandha, turmeric, nitric oxide, caffeine, and more to give athletes and everyday folks an edge in their work and life. They've been generous generous enough to give our listeners 20% off with the code FELIX, that's F-E-L-I-X, and they'll throw in a free CBD lip balm if you use that code FELIX at nanocraftcbd.com. They even sent... The Brooklyn Borough President, a goodie bag full of lots of actually really great stuff Uh, if you or your staff or someone at home wants to take a a try. So check them out. I want to get back into it.
1: I'm not. I'm not. I'm not giving that to my staff. But, <laughs> you know, that's my own CBD oil. If, and if they have, they got,
0: they got the CBD oil. They have the the for if you're ever having some muscle pain. There's like a little rub. I'm
1: very familiar with it. And, and 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 tell them if they have any weed around the house. You know, <laughs> don't feel bad about that. Too. <laughs> well said. Uh, hey, listening, send it over to the borough president.
0: <laughs> um, there's so for me, you know kind of getting into the the policing thing you know people who know you know your background 22 years in the in the NYPD um what's that been like for you you know to talk about your past experiences I'm sure you still have a lot of friends still have a lot of people that you know in that world to see you know uh officers with really poor uh conduct obviously um but also there's a lot of hatred um towards policing all across the country and especially against the NYPD these days um so I just want to kind of gauge where you're at, what the conversations are like between you and perhaps former other cops, perhaps current cops, uh, and how you assess this, this situation.
1: And, and it's so important to know how I got here. And it goes back to 1975 when I was arrested um, as a young man. Uh, my brother uh, and I, we would be bad by police officers and I hated police officers. My grades slipped. Um, I became a real angry young man, and it was just obvious. I remember my mother say that, Eric, you know, you just, you went from a loving child to this child that is full of rage, because my innocence was uh, was taken from me inside a place that was supposed to be a symbol of protection. And it wasn't until uh, later, uh, when uh, Arthur, Arthur Miller was killed, that you know, I got involved in an organization called National Black United Front, and I started fighting against police abuse. Uh, Reverend Herbert Daughtry was the leader of the organization, and then a young man named Randolph Evans was killed. And they, the leaders of the movement, came to 13 of us and told us they wanted us to go inside and fight against police abuse. They said we can't continue to fight outside. Um, you guys have to go inside. And I was like, man, you must be on crack or something. (laughs) I'm not trying to go into the police department. But I had so much respect for them uh, that I went in and we fought every day. When I got into the department, Eleanor Bumpus was was shot and killed by Officer Sullivan. And so I can benchmark my life by those interactions. Cliffy Glover, 10-year-old shot in South Jamaica, Queens, around the corner from me. uh, You know, case after case after case. And so... When I went into the department, I went in with an assignment and a mission. And I, I, I was true to that mission for 20 plus years. We started 100 Blacks in law enforcement who care. There was a gentleman named Randy Credico that I used to march with every evening at Rockefeller Plaza to turn around the Rockefeller drug laws. And I used to march with him, and literally did I know I was gonna go and become a state senator and was co-sponsored the bill that repealed the Rockefeller drug laws but it was this duality that exists. During the day, I would march with Miss Diallo after her son was shot and killed, um, shot at 40 times. And then in the evening, I put on a uniform and go protect marches. And, you know, people used to yell, call me Uncle Tom and you're a traitor and what have you. Uh, but I knew they didn't dislike me, the person, because I was just marching next to them. The symbol of the uniform is what they disliked. And Today, I had a press conference with the Council of Retired um, a Police Association, um, African-American organization. These were heroes. These, these black and brown uh, law enforcement officers were fighting from within. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, there is, a, you know, there's a lot of tension, as you're seeing a lot. But I understand where the pain is coming from. So none of this is personal. It's about how do we get this done?
0: Do you believe that one day people... Um we will get to a point where young black men in particular will not, and women of course, but will not fear the police. That one day we can truly rebuild this from the ground up so that there will be trust again within those communities and our law enforcement.
1: Heck yes. Yes. First of all, we never had trust. The DNA right. of policing right. is the DNA of racism. The early the early police in the South were used for, to capture runaway, runaway slaves. Here in the North, it was used to protect property of the rich. So the DNA, just like my skin tone is part of my DNA, just like my hairstyle when I used to have hair, you know, all of that is part of my, I'm hardwired for certain things. Policing is hardwired to be racist. And so what we have to do Now build a new system of policing. Mm -hmm. That is what I know we can do. We can change the concept of public safety and not be this reactive model, but a proactive way of preventing crime. What do I mean? Rikers Island, 40 to 50 percent of the men and women on Rikers Island are dyslexic. Uh, 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 55 percent learning disability. 80 percent don't have a high school diploma or equivalency diploma. So if we take the money in the police department, the billion dollars in the last four years in our budget, use that money to go after giving people real dyslexic uh, uh, training and education Mm -hmm. so they can become productive citizens, they don't all of a sudden sit in the classroom and say, hey, I can't learn, and I'm going to hang on the corner, swing drugs, and now I'm going to go do a stick-up or robbery. So the goal is not to continue to try to close Rikers out in the building. We need to start closing the pipeline so we won't need a Rikers Island. Mm. That is what the call is about right now. And when we redefine policing, uh, use cure violence, use restorative justice, have community-based interactions when someone does uh, minor offenses, how do you resolve it within the community? Teaching communications, you know, it blows my mind that we don't know how to communicate. <laughs> it's true no it's not it's not i'm gonna wait till you finish a sentence so i can tell you how wrong you are and let me tell you something a lot of people talk about the madness of trump which is madness but we got a lot of nasty people walking around every day oh yeah go to twitter Uh, oh
0: my god i mean you talk about not even listening to each other they don't even read each other at this point it's like you know like they don't even read the i mean it's it's just it's crazy but you know, there's others. Uh, something else that I, I I heard you say in a recent interview that I thought was really interesting. And I want you, for the people that haven't heard this idea, I want you to, to elaborate. You said people are feeling black right now. Right. You said uh, from coronavirus and lack of health care is making people feel black. Like right. what's going on is making people feel black. And I'll let you kind of explain that. Right. And I thought it was a really, in, uh, the way I interpreted was really uh, powerful and interesting. But we just take it away and, and kind of s- ex- explain what you meant?
1: So – I remember when Trump was elected and I was with my staff and I looked at the faces of the people who all of a sudden, out of nowhere, felt as though life was robbed and snatched from them. And I said to my staff, something different is happening in America. And what happened immediately after? The Me Too movement. You know, women didn't start being sexually harassed pre uh, post-Trump. So all of a sudden that anger turned into purpose then coronavirus came i started going to food pantries and i started to see young whites on the line getting food and saying i never thought i would be here in this country asking for food i started seeing them email me in the office saying i can't pay my rent i'm about to lose my apartment i have an ivy league degree and i can't get a job i don't even know how to get health care You know, um, um, my family member's ill and I can't get health care. I can't even get education. The schools are closed down and my children are not being educated. The fears that black people have had, all of a sudden, white people were saying, wait a minute, this is what (laughs) y'all talking about. So, uh, I can't breathe is not a new sentence. It didn't only happen in Minneapolis, a thousand miles away. It happened right in Staten Island. The only difference from then and now is that all of a sudden, white folks who you see, look at the marches, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. large number of yeah. whites, you see now all of a sudden they say, "I know what it is to be black." yeah, <laughs> you
0: know, do you feel like we're
1: fine like we're at a turning point? It depends, it depends. If we turn this into some fad, you know, I'm going to march today." <laughs> you know, if we turn this into, yeah. you know, that, hey, since, you know, we can't go to the bars or we can't go out to hang out at the park and, you know, what have you. um, So let's just go and march. Then it's it's all bull. Yeah. But if Black Lives Matter, then you know what? Go to that black cafe who you've been ignoring all this time and only go into a cafe that's owned by someone white. Mm-hmm. Go to a black Doctor, a black dentist, a black patronize the black business. And hey, check this out. Go into our schools that have been segregated. You have all white classrooms hidden behind gifted programs. You know, demand that you're going to integrate these schools. Go to these safety net hospitals. You know, so if this is real, then it can't be that, hey, I'm just marching. March next to someone that doesn't look like you. And engage and develop a relationship. You know, that is when it's real. But if all we're doing is marching because it's cool and you can, you know, put on your Facebook or your Twitter or your Instagram that, hey, I was in the march, you know, black lives really matter. Yeah. That's all a hustle.
0: Right. <laughs> and from and from a like a legislative perspective, I know there's already been a little bit of, of movement there. Um, are there things that you're working on with your team and and other legislators to to get past that would, you know, from the top down in this system, uh, you know, at least see that change from a legal and, and law standpoint?
1: Yes, yes. And there are very important places where we can make real impact because correct policing is a puzzle and there are many pieces to the puzzle. If you just put one piece on the board, you don't have the whole picture. Mm. And so the pieces must connect together. 50A, banning the chokehold, uh, reallocation of money. All of those pieces must go together in order for us to have the right piece to policing. What do I mean? I Spoke with the mayor last week and I said, Mayor, listen, one of the most important things you could do now is to allow local communities to choose their precinct commanders. Mm. A precinct commander is a miniature oligarch. Mm. He controls a geographical piece of real estate throughout the city. Our city is, is is broken into precincts. And if you if you don't know who that precinct commander is, if you don't have a relationship with that precinct commander, he'll decide what businesses are gonna stay open, who's going to be uh, hit with, with citations, who gets a liquor license, what parades can happen, what blocks can have block parties. So, what I said to the mayor, let's put together a small committee of community boards, precinct councils, uh, local civic groups, and let them get three recommendations from the police commissioner. And they interview the precinct commander and say, before you get this command of our community, tell us what your vision is for our community. Mm-hmm. Now, here's where the other piece to the puzzle comes to this 50A. Historically, the community could not see the record of that precinct commander. Now with 58, they can say, let us see your record. Let's see how many CCRBs you had. Let's see how many disciplinary issues you had. Mm. The officers, the commander Edelman, who was with the officer that pushed the girl to the ground, he was standing right beside him. He did nothing. That commander was the commander of the seventy third precinct in Brownsville. He was ran out of Rockaway because the people didn't want him there, mm. so the residents of brownsville Brownsville inherited a precinct commander with a checkered pass, and they were never even able and to ask just a him. Cycle. yeah that's why you now we got fifty a now we did do this new initiative. now we mm. can start local grassroots, change it in policing
0: now I'm also curious for for you being a former police officer how do you what do you say to the next gen i mean we're gonna eventually have a next generation of police and (laughs) you know and you talk about you got insulted with the uncle toms and stuff like that how do you convince uh this next generation to go into policing
1: did i write your questions (laughs) (laughs) these are good questions man let me tell you the biggest hustle man. In slavery, the plantation's uh, brutal right hand would cut the belly of an African-American woman while she was pregnant and take her baby out so all the other slaves would see what could happen to them. This is what is happening in policing. When Black doctors were not taking care of our grandmothers and grandfathers, from the pulpits to our organizations, we encourage black and brown smarts, young people to become doctors. When they were not taking care of, of us in our schools, we encouraged uh, black and brown young people to become teachers. We encouraged the third grade Marshals to become lawyers to fight in the civil in, in, in the Supreme Court. We've always stated, whenever the institutions are not doing what they're supposed to do, as black and brown people, you're supposed to go in and lead them to the right direction. The only institution that we have not have not done that with is law enforcement. Mm. And so think about it for a moment. When those cops beat me, they didn't beat me because I did something wrong. They said, we're going to send a message to you, Negro, that you would never want to be a cop. They mm. played us. And so... Now, when you get a young black person that says to his mom and dad around the dinner table, one day I want to be a police commissioner. No, you don't. You would not be a sellout. You would not be a traitor. All of that would be fine. Mm -hmm. But when you go into the store and buy a loaf of bread and you pay those taxes, you're paying for that racist. (laughs) (laughs) So how how sick is it? that we are telling our young people not to go into an industry that we're paying for and the only people should be in that industry are those who are abusive. We got to change that narrative. There needs to be a national call to have black and brown young people going to the police department, NAACP, the Urban League, every fraternity, every sorority, every preacher from their pulpits. If we want to change policing, then what Reverend Daughtry did with me, we must do to all of our young people. You must now, you that Eagle Scout? who who, is, who we, we saw grow up on our block and you're intelligent and smart. Young man, you need to become a priest and commander. You're that young girl that sat in our church and went to Howard University and you're now part of the AKA of a sorority. We want you now to become a chief in the police department. We need to give these young people an assignment to go inside the police department and change it from within. If we don't do that, if we're only pushing from the outside and not in the inside, we're never going to get the transformation we're looking for.
0: Now, if I had told a young 15 year old Eric Adams at that point that he would have served twenty two years in the police department, what would he have said to
1: me? I would said, man, you out of your mind <laughs> you were, I said, you had, serving the police department I remember I remember the first day I got there and and then during a few weeks later and we were debating and arguing about Eleanor bumpers. Uh, now they were trying to say it was justifiable for it to be shot. And I was arguing in our social science class. And one of the um, instructors said, you know what? You're not going to last. <laughs> <laughs> and I said to him, you know what? I know I'm not going to last. So, you know, who's to know? Uh, man makes plans. God laughs. Um, our destiny is something that's out of our control. And so I know that a young person of color who has been stopped, frisked, uh, harassed, um, had his, bump, his book bags dumped out, um, dehumanized in front of his his young girlfriend. My son was in the store one day. His girlfriend went in the store. He was outside. The cops came and and, and questioned him and started going through his pockets. And he says, you know, my, my dad is the state senator. They said, so what? And she came out of the store. He's crying in front of her because he's just dehumanized. And I told, shared with them, son, they want you to hate cops. So, you will never become a cop. Now, what are you going to do?
0: Mm. (laughs) Mm. Now, to wrap things up, do you ever think about legacy? I mean, hopefully, we have so many more long years of healthy life. But (laughs) do you ever think about, you know, I mean, police officer, New York State senator, Brooklyn borough president? We don't know what the future holds. But, you know, when, when it's all said and done, how do you hope Eric Adams is remembered?
1: I thought my legacy was going to be policing. I thought that the mark I made, my legislation abandoned the database of stopping frizz uh, around stopping uh, women from being handcuffed when they're arrested and they're pregnant, uh, the Rockefeller drug laws reform. Uh, I thought policing was my legacy. And I know now what my legacy is going to be. My legacy is health. Oh. My legacy, and who would have thought? I'm not a doctor. When I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes uh, four years ago, I lost my sight in my left eye. I was losing to my right. Doctor said, you're going to be blind in a year, Eric, the way it looks. She said, you're actually legally blind now. I had permanent nerve damage in my hands and feet. and I told this story often uh, that was going to lead to amputation, uh, had an ulcer, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. Uh, My body was a mess. I looked okay physically, but I I should have taken an internal selfie to see that my body was breaking down. And I went to five experts. They all told me that, Eric, there's nothing could happen. It's in your DNA, your mother's diabetic. This is just the way it is. And it wasn't until I decided to do something scientific, I went to Google and Googled reversing diabetes. And all this information came, came up. If I would have type living with diabetes I would have gone down a different search path. That's why it's so important, words are power. Mm -hmm. And I typed reversing diabetes, and all of this information came up. And out of that, I was able to find what a whole food, plant-based diet was able to do. And within uh, three weeks, my vision came back. Wow. Within three months, my nerve damage went away, my ulcer went away, my blood pressure normalized. Drop 35 uh, pounds, you know, um, my body's tight. I don't have a six-pack. I have a case. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, let me tell you, I think uh, I think your legacy will far will, will be far more than than just health. Um, I want to thank you for for taking the time and and you know, as someone who you know, I'm 20. I've my all my life I've grown up in Brooklyn. Um, to have someone like you at the helm during just in general, but especially during crises and. And to, to hear your words and to to hear your your real presence, at least, uh, you know, today, um, it really means the world. And, uh, you know, I'm excited. Again, we're only living in the, in the present. Uh, we <laughs> don't know what the future holds. But it's people like you that, for me, uh, at least reassure me that this world might be okay. It so is. thank you, uh, you. Borough President Adams, and uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you for having me. Take care.